0: Our lesson for the day is uh, Psalm 9. We sung uh, most of it earlier, uh, a rendition of it. Now, listen carefully to God's word. A song uh, to the musical director, set to the death of a son, a psalm by David. I will give thanks to Yahweh with my, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will rejoice and I will exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and they perish at your presence. For you have maintained my justice and my cause. You sit enthroned, judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. Their name you have blotted out everlastingly and forever. The enemy, they are finished. Everlasting ruins. And cities you have uprooted. The very memory of them has perished. But Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for judgment. And it is He who judges the world in righteousness. He will execute justice for the peoples with uprightness. And so Yahweh will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know Your name put their trust in You, for You have not forsaken those who seek You, Yahweh. Sing praises to Yahweh, who sits enthroned in Zion. Declare among the peoples his doings. For the one who seeks blood remembers them. He has not forgotten the cry of the afflicted ones. Be gracious to me, Yahweh. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death. So I may tell all your praises that in the gates of daughter Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit they have made. In the net they hid, their own foot has been caught. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment by the work of his palms, striking down the wicked. The wicked will return to the grave, all nations that forget God. For the needy will not be forgotten forever, nor will the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, Yahweh. Do not let mortal man prevail. Let the nations be judged before your face. Appoint a teacher for them, Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but mortal man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you that your word has been inspired by your Holy Spirit, preserved by your Holy Spirit, And that you have promised to bless the reading and the preaching of your word with the presence and the power of your spirit. So we claim that promise today and we thank you for how your word reorients our perspective. And shows us the way things really are despite all evidence to the contrary. Give us faith to believe your word and to take hope and comfort in it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you weren't here last Sunday, you missed an excellent sermon on kindness that I would uh, I would highly encourage you to find on our, on our website. But if you were here last week, then the sermons that I'll be preaching this Sunday and next Sunday might come as an unpleasant jolt because Psalms 9 and 10 deal with the very ugly realities of unkindness. Injustice, oppression, and exploitation There is a long-standing tradition of reading these two psalms Psalms 9 and 10 As one whole psalm In fact, uh, Catholic Bibles and other traditions Actually just include them as one psalm And so uh, the numbering of our psalms Versus uh, some other traditions uh, Psalters are actually off a number uh, after this point because they just count this as Psalm 9. We follow uh, a different tradition that counts them as two separate ones, but whatever, however you number them, the point is that they, they were meant to go together. They were meant to be read together as one whole composition. We know this because uh, Psalm 10 is one of the few psalms in the first book of the Psalter. Psalms 1 through 40 make up book 1 of the Psalter. And Psalm 10 is one of the only psalms in that whole collection that does not have its own heading. So it's natural to just keep reading right from Psalm 9 into Psalm 10. But the other more compelling piece of evidence is that Psalms 9 and 10, which I will from here on refer to as Psalm 910, uh, or this psalm, for, uh, just for convenience sake. Um, Psalms 9 and 10 together form an acrostic using the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So that means that approximately every other letter, every other verse, approximately, begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Okay. Why does that matter? Well, it does. Uh, the wisdom literature of Scripture contains uh, a number of these alphabetic acrostics. Don't 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 tune out. Don't tune out. This is interesting. This is important. There's some there's cash value to this. All right. The wisdom literature of Scripture contains a number of these alphabetic acrostics. You've probably never noticed this. Some Bibles will put it. Uh, in, in uh, some of these passages but some of them are, are uh, we're not aware of it uh, in our English translations and what that does uh, is not only would it have helped you maybe to memorize that passage of scripture if you were uh, a Hebrew uh, student uh, trying to memorize passages of scripture that alphabetic acrostic would have jogged your memory uh, but more than that more than just an aid for memorization These alphabetic acrostics are usually uh, meant to show that this passage is giving us a thorough summary of this topic. It's covering everything from A to Z, so to speak. It's a full explanation. It's saying that this is kind of not the final word, but this says kind of everything that needs to be said about this topic at least in summary fashion. Examples of this include such passages like the end of Proverbs 31, the the description of the noble wife, who is really Lady Wisdom from earlier on in the book of Proverbs. That whole passage, verses 10 through 31, is a perfect alphabetic acrostic saying, this is the the complete summation uh, of Lady Wisdom's attributes. The other most famous one is Psalm 119. This one is so uh, clear that it usually makes it into your English translations. They'll either put the Hebrew letter or uh, the name of the Hebrew letter. Uh, and what that does is there are eight verses for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there are 176 verses. Uh, and each one is following that that progression this is the complete and total sum, summation of god's law god's instruction god's word and then another uh, important one is psalm 145 it's a perfect alphabetic acrostic that shows sort of the height of praise of god and all of his goodness and greatness uh, in Psalm one hundred and forty five. So those are those are neat, tidy, perfect acrostics. They follow exactly the order and everything is there. But there are also acrostic passages that look pretty sloppy. The spacing is irregular. Maybe it's you know two lines between this letter and five lines between the next letter. or maybe the letters are out of order. Letters in the Hebrew alphabet are jumbled up. Or some letters even get left out. They're missing altogether. What happened to that letter? Where'd it go? Uh, some scholars cynically think that, you know, this is the result of a sleepy scribe. Or maybe David had too much wine to drink that night. Or, you know, somebody was a little tipsy when they wrote that down. But these are totally intentional. And I'll explain why in just a minute. When we see if you were studying this passage and, and you were following the the acrostic, the alphabet, all of a sudden you say, Wait a minute, that's not right. That's not supposed to be there. That where's what happened to this letter? What's going on here? That's exactly the effect it's intended to have. When you read the passage, that the structure of it, the alphabetic structure of it, is showing you Visually, or demonstrating to you, reinforcing what the passage is saying. And the whole point is to, to make you sit up and stop and say, wait a minute, something is not right. Something is out of order here. The laws of the world have somehow been altered, and the alphabet is not even the same anymore. The clearest example of this kind of messy, Or imperfect acrostic is the book of Lamentations. After the destruction of Jerusalem, the prophet Jeremiah penned the book of Lamentations as a lament over the destruction of the city. And the first four chapters of the book of Lamentations are lengthy, detailed, alphabetic acrostics. And in two of those chapters... Two of them have perfect acrostics, but two of them are, are tweaked. They're messed up. Letters are reversed in their sequence. And if you read those verses, those are the verses that describe how it appears as if God has turned His back on His people. It appears as if God has abandoned His people. It appears as if the covenant has been broken and God has forgotten His people. And so the, the, the letters are reversed there to symbolize that things are backwards, things are not right. And this is what we see in Psalm, Psalms 9 and 10. In the first half of this passage, Psalm 9, the acrostic is pretty neat and tidy. It it's a little bit irregular in the spacing. Only one of the letters is missing. But then we get to Psalm 10, the second half, and everything goes haywire. We didn't read Psalm 10 this morning just for the sake of time. We'll talk about that more next week. But the acrostic structure, although it's definitely there, it falls apart. There's a massive gap in the middle, which happens to be the very section that's describing how the wicked arrogantly think that God is not paying attention and they can get away with whatever they want. The alphabet, the the structure falls apart. The alphabet is all jumbled. It's missing letters there because it's showing us that at times the world seems like everything is upside down. Sometimes the world seems like it's been thrown into chaos. The chaotic structure shows us the moral chaos that's being described In the passage, at times it looks like God has lost control. It looks like the world has been started turning backwards or something. It looks like even the alphabet is falling apart. The imperfect acrostic of Psalms 9-10 comes right after Psalm 8. To highlight the contrast between the two. Uh, many of you were snowed in or out of town when I preached on Psalm 8. So let me catch you up real quick. We had a small crowd that, uh, that Sunday. In Psalm 8, God bestows immeasurable glory upon vulnerable and dependent mortal man. What is mortal man that you remember him? Or the son of man, the son of Adam that you visit him? that's the center of Psalm 8 and Psalm 8 is all about the glory of God that's been bestowed on this finite dependent mortal man he's been given glory elevated to dominion over all of creation and Psalm 8 highlights God's glory not to make man not to make us uh, have a you know an a self self a self-esteem, Uh, crisis, but to show us the the amazing glory that God has bestowed on us. We in our weakness have received this amazing blessing, this amazing glory from God. Hebrews 2 quotes from Psalm 8 and says that Jesus is that son of man who reigns over all things and that in him the church reigns with him over all. All things, but all things have not yet been brought into subjection to their rightful Lord. We do not yet see all things brought into subjection under Christ. And so, Psalm 8, this incredible psalm about the glory of God bestowed on man and how the Son of Man is exalted to have dominion over all things, is then in Psalm 8. The next psalm, Psalm 9 and 10, contrasted with the way things often appear. Often it doesn't appear as if God is in complete control. Often it doesn't seem like um, God's Son of Man is on the throne. In Psalms 9 and 10, we see that Yahweh is enthroned as King, but everything is not as it should be. The wicked are preying on the helpless. The wicked bless the greedy. They revile Yahweh. They arrogantly assume that God is either unaware of what they're doing or unable to intervene. The English uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon once observed wisely that even the sorest of evils may furnish an occasion for a song. What a blessing it would be if we could turn even the most disastrous event into a theme for a song. And by doing, so turn the tables upon our great enemy. I would go even further and say that times of affliction, times of when evil seems to be prevailing, these times are the most appropriate times for psalms of praise and thanksgiving. Because that's when we most need to be reminded of God's faithfulness in the past and of his promises yet to be fulfilled. And so in the face of this moral chaos, what do we find David doing? We find him praising God. We find him recounting God's past acts of deliverance. It's no accident. That David, whose life was filled with so many trials, afflictions, and sorrows, is the Bible's primary composer of songs for worship and thanksgiving. He was trained in the school of suffering to learn how to give praise to God, even in the face of great evil and affliction. Charles Spurgeon, one, one more time, he said... If only we could determine to praise the Lord, we should surmount many a difficulty which our low spirits would never have been equal to. And we would be able to do double the work that could be done if our heart be languid in its beating, if we be crushed and trodden down in soul. As the evil spirit in Saul yielded to the influence of the harp of the son of Jesse, so would the spirit of melancholy often take flight from us. If only we would take up the song of praise. We need songs like this, songs throughout uh, the scriptures to remind us of God's faithfulness, to remind us of the way things really are when all evidence seems to point to the contrary. But God's people, you and me, we aren't the only ones who need to be reminded of God's truth in the face of evil and injustice. That is also the time when the world most needs a refresher course on the sovereignty and justice of God. You see, the problem is not a few bad apples here and there. A few kind of outlier, uh, wicked people here and there. The problem, as we see in Psalm 2, as we see in Psalms 9 and 10, the problem is that entire nations, cultural institutions, economic systems, political machines and military powers, entire nations are carrying out the sorts of injustices described here. And you don't have to look very far in our own land to pile up a pretty depressing list of examples. Depressing list of examples. And so, what what does David do? He calls on God to give the nations an education in the ABCs of God's kingship. They need, the nations need a lesson in Reality 101. At the end of Psalm 9, the first section, David says, Appoint a teacher for them, Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but mortal man. Appoint a teacher. That's a little bit different than uh, some of our English translations. The word there is a little bit unclear. It could mean fear. It could mean teacher. The point is, this teaching, this teacher is supposed to put the fear of God uh, in the nations, the wicked nations. And what is that teaching? What is what is it that the nations need to be reminded of? They need the reminder of Psalm 9 and 10. That is uh, the teaching. That is the divine, uh, the basics, the primer in the, the way things work, the way the world really is. It rehearses the ABCs, so to speak, of a life, of life in a world where God is both king and judge. There's life according to the wicked, where there's no accountability, where they can get away with whatever they want, where God doesn't see. And if he can see, he's powerless to do anything about it. And then there's life according to God's word the alternative facts, if you will. Things appear to be one way, but in fact, that's not how they really are. And so the first half of this psalm, Psalm 9, is a bold and confident proclamation of the facts, the way things really are, about God's faithfulness and His promises. And at the very heart of that first half of, uh, the very heart of Psalm 9, the central line of this psalm is verse 11, which says, Sing praises to Yahweh who sits enthroned in Zion. Declare among the peoples His doings. Praise and proclamation, worship and mission go hand in hand. The church's worship fuels her work in the world and her work in the world is aimed at worship. The first part of our song reminds us of the truth that Jesus is Lord, that God is King. He is Judge. These are not wishful thoughts. These are not uh, things that we um, think would be nice if they were true. These are the way, this is the way things really are. I don't have time to uh, to go through the entire psalm today, so I want to pick out several key words, several key things uh, that are used to convey these truths in such a way that they highlight uh, the often unexpected ways that God accomplishes His justice in the world, the unexpected ways uh, that God exercises His kingship and His authority. The first one, uh, the first, uh, word is the word perish. That word appears numerous times in these, in these passages. And Psalm 10 vividly portrays how the weak and the helpless perish at the hands of the wicked. But the first half, Psalm 9, reassures us that God will cause the wicked to perish, either by converting them or killing them. What is the, uh, the death of a sinner? The true, uh, the best way for a sinner to die is to be converted. But if God's enemies will not repent, if they will not convert, they are promised judgment. Psalm 9 verse 3 says, "...when my enemies turn back, they stumble and they perish at your presence. For you have maintained my justice and my cause." You sit enthroned, judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. Their name you have blotted out everlastingly and forever. The enemy, they are finished. Everlasting ruins and cities you have uprooted. The very memory of them has perished. And then at the end of that section, 9.16, it says... Yahweh has made Himself known. He has executed judgment by the work of His palms striking down the wicked. For the needy will not be forgotten forever, nor will the hope of the afflicted perish forever. You see, the wicked think that their memory will live on forever in the monuments and cities that they have built for themselves on the backs of the oppressed and the afflicted. Much like the, the Tower of, of Babel or other monuments uh, throughout history that have been built uh, to the arrogance of a tyrant um, as he afflicts the, the poor and the vulnerable, the wicked believe that their memory will be remembered forever. Their memory memory will last forever. Their name will never be blotted out from the earth. But God is not impressed at all by these attempts to make a name for ourselves. In fact, this psalm assures us that God is intent on destroying any and all monuments of man's arrogance and oppression. If you look throughout... Uh, the pages of history, you can see how God has swept into the dustbin of history. Even the greatest of empires, even the greatest of civilizations that have rebelled against God, that have capitalized on the weak and the vulnerable. They have been utterly forgotten, almost. There are ruins, but that's about it. Ruins that remind us, uh, of God's work and his sovereignty throughout history. Empires and civilizations that were too big to fail, right, in the time uh, that of their heyday, but now merely lie in ruins. And so the contrast couldn't be starker. When God executes judgment, the wicked are completely forgotten right if god forgets something he, it doesn't mean that it slips his mind it means that he doesn't uh, act to save if god remembers it doesn't mean that all of a sudden he recalls something uh, that he had uh, previously forgotten it means that he acts in accordance with his covenant and so when god passes judgment the wicked are are sentenced uh, to everlasting Uh, Forgottenness But the poor are not forgotten The poor are remembered And God vindicates The afflicted Because God will cause The memory, even the memory Of the wicked to perish forever The hope Of the afflicted will not Perish forever As you can see The themes of remembering And forgetting are also very important to this psalm. Remembering and forgetting is the difference between life and death. At the end of Psalm 9, in verse 17, it says, "...the wicked will return to the grave, all nations that forget God. For the needy will not be forgotten forever, nor will the hope of the afflicted perish forever." Catch what's being said here. The wicked will return to the grave. All nations that forget God. God will send the nations that forget Him to the grave. Back to the grave even. But He does not forget the needy and afflicted. Wicked nations oppress the weak and the vulnerable. Why? Because they have forgotten God. Because they have forgotten the central truths of this passage. The ABC's. They have forgotten their ABC's. They have forgotten that God really is King and Judge. And so, they think they can get away with anything. They think they can, they're can Im, they uh, immune from punishment of any sort. They think there's nothing after death. And, and whatever happens now... Uh, they can, uh, they can do whatever they want. They oppress the weak and the vulnerable, be vulnerable because they have forgotten that God is judge. But God destroys the wicked nations because he has not forgotten the weak and the vulnerable. Verse 17 literally says, the wicked will return to the grave. The grave is the unavoidable destination of any nation that fosters a culture of death, a, na- a culture that is informed by and inspired by and built upon death, the death, death of the weak, death of the vulnerable, death of the helpless, death of the, those who don't fit that society's standard of, of perfection and acceptability. Any culture of death, any civilization built upon death, upon blood, is destined for the grave any culture that denies the fact that man is created in the image of God, any culture that kills the unborn, that perverts God's design for marriage and procreation, any culture that promotes industries based on exploitation, that euthanizes the elderly and the disabled, this type of society will literally self-destruct. The grave is the logical end for a culture of death. But beyond just the natural consequences that God has built into His world, God God has built a logic into His world, and if you work against that logic, things will not go well for you. But beyond the natural consequences that God has built into His world, God has also promised that He will call wicked individuals and wicked nations to account for their sins. There will be a reckoning. In the middle of Psalm 9, it says, Those who know your name put their trust in you, for you have not forsaken those who seek you, Yahweh. Sing praises to Yahweh who sits enthroned in Zion. Declare among the peoples his doings. For the avenger of blood, literally, the one who seeks blood, remembers them. That is, the the afflicted, those who seek him. He has not forgotten the cry of the afflicted ones. Psalm 9, the first half, sets us up perfectly for some incredible dramatic irony later on in Psalm 10. You know what dramatic irony is, right? It's when you know something that the character in the story doesn't know. Somehow, through a, you've been privy to a a different conversation that that character in the story, they don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but you know it. And so when you see, it's like watching this. Uh, train wreck happen. You can see it happening. You know it and they don't and you want to, you know, yell at the TV and tell them not to open door number three or whatever. Uh, cause you know what's going to happen if they do that. And this is what Psalm nine sets us up for. Psalm nine lays down, uh, the, the, the standards of God's judgment and that he will call an account. He will demand a reckoning. He seeks blood. He is the avenger of blood that has not forgotten the afflicted. And so in Psalm 10, when we start to read how the arrogant boast that God will not call to account, it's almost laughable. The arrogance of the the attitude of the wicked in Psalm 10, the second half, is staggering and it's frightening. But we have the comfort of knowing that God is the one who calls to account. He is the avenger of blood. The idea of God being an avenger of blood goes all the way back to the Lord's covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. After the flood, after... Uh, God's um, Noah's family uh, disembarks uh, the ark in a new world uh, there is a reiteration but an expansion uh, of the creation covenant of the covenant with Adam a lot of the same instructions are given but more authority is now given because man has matured in some ways and one of those additional authorities that is given to Noah as a representative of the righteous people of God is the authority to execute capital punishment in case of murder. And so in Genesis 9, the Lord says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. Same word. Same word as here in Psalm 9. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man... From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The teaching of scripture is that life is in the blood. That's why the people of God were forbidden from eating meat that still had blood in it, because it is an acknowledgement that we do not get life from the animal we're not somehow absorbing the life of this animal into our own soul God gives us life he is the one who sustains life he is the one who uses food yes but it is ultimately God who is the source of life and so the people of God were forbidden to eat or drink blood life is in the blood and when blood is shed and and homicide or even in manslaughter, that blood calls out for vengeance. So there were, there was, uh, if you were, if there was a case of manslaughter, you accidentally, uh, took somebody's, you know, you killed somebody while you were out in the field working together, um, you were still guilty of manslaughter and you had to flee to a city of refuge. And follow certain prescribed rules because that blood was calling out for vengeance. If you were guilty of homicide, of course, the case was even more dire. Your blood was to be shed. Because the whole premise is that God is the avenger of blood. He demands that satisfaction be made anytime one of his image bearers is killed or murdered. We know that the blood of Abel cried out from the ground after his brother Cain murdered him. And so God had to punish Cain and and put the, the mark upon him and banish him from the good land. God will not overlook the shedding of innocent blood. He will call to account. He will demand a reckoning. But we also know that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Christ has been shed and covers us, covers our sin. The blood of Christ is powerful to atone for all our sins. And instead of calling up God's judgment against us who put Christ to death, the blood of Christ is brings has been shed so that Christ has borne the judgment of God for us and we can be forgiven we can be cleansed we can be declared not guilty and so psalm 910 this song paints a picture for us of the reality of life under God's kingship life in a world where God is judge, even though the wicked may at times prosper, even though the, the nations rage and the kings of the earth plot in vain, we know that the Lord is judge. that Jesus Christ is both king and judge over all. He is. He has been given all authority. In heaven on our earth. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He must reign until all his foes submit. We do not yet see all things brought into subjection under Christ. But we know that Christ will reign until all his foes submit. And then he will defeat the last enemy. Which is death. And he will hand the kingdom over to the Father. And he will call all nations to account. The nations have been given to Christ. They are His inheritance. And He is the righteous judge. It is only through hope in these great promises of God that we are able to stand up to evil and injustice. If we don't believe that that God is in control and that He actually cares about what is going on, is involved in working out His plans in the world, then we will be unable to stand up and oppose evil and injustice. We need the promises of God that we find here and in other passages of Scripture so that we have the grace to praise God, to give God thanks, even when it doesn't look like there's anything to be thankful for. If we don't have the promise of God's kingship, the fact that Jesus Christ is the judge over all the earth, then we will be tempted to take vengeance into our own hands. If we don't believe there's a reckoning at the final day, then you've got to settle all your scores right here and now because there's nothing else that's going to be done about it. But because we know that Christ is the judge, the righteous judge, we can leave room for God's wrath. We can love our enemy. And bless those who persecute us. And we can lay down our lives sacrificially. And bring hope to the oppressed and the the hopeless. In a world rife with conflict and godless arrogance and oppression and exploitation. It is the church's duty. It is our duty to proclaim and embody. This hope, the hope that we find here in this Psalm, the hope that Jesus is both King and Judge, the hope that Jesus is a stronghold for the oppressed, the hope that the Lord hears the cries of the afflicted and that He is the Avenger of blood who topples tyrants, who wipes out the wicked and will one day expunge all evil from His creation and wipe away every tear from every eye. These are the ABCs of Christ's kingship. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the comfort and the hope that your word gives to us. Give us faith to take you at your word and to boldly proclaim to the nations that Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.